0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at Mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoted for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full turns at Mintmobile.com. This is Cheerful Book Club. Conversations with the writers shaping the way we think about our world. Ed Miliband, Jeff Lloyd, and friends spend time with the people behind today's smartest writing. In association with Vintage, read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more.
1: Hello and welcome to Cheerful Book Club. And Ed, we have a new cast member. We've we've opened up the magic circle if that's what if that's what you can, uh, yeah. if that's what you can call it all of a sudden we're 33 and a third percent less pale male and stale
2: exactly i'm delighted to say that we're joined by sarah o'connor who is the investigations correspondent of the financial times and is award-winning uh for pieces that she's written she has a column on the world of work thank you so much for kind of breaking up our sort of male pale and stalism
3: it's absolute pleasure i'm not sure you can be circle when there's only two of you though just just putting that out there
2: There speaks an economist (laughs) and that's sort of what we're talking about today um because we're going to be talking to uh, emily oster uh author of crib sheet
3: yeah so i suggested that we talk to emily because um possibly you haven't heard of her but if you're a, a woman of a certain age and you've been pregnant lately you probably have she wrote this brilliant book called expecting better which is all about pregnancy but she decides not to talk down to women like uh, most people do in that stage of their lives and goes through all of the evidence about pregnancy so is it actually okay to drink do you need to worry about sleeping on your side versus sleeping on your back and a lot of um my friends found it just a really empowering book and so crib sheet is her new one and it's it it takes it onto the next stage which is how to look after the the baby when it turns up
0: cheerful book club talking to the writers, exploring the biggest ideas of our time.
3: Support for Cheerful Book
0: Club comes from Vintage. Read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more.
3: We're joined by Emily Oster, the author of Crib Sheet. Emily, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm about to go on maternity leave, and this book has been exactly what I needed at exactly the right time. And I just wondered, why did you write it? And did you have some feeling that actually this is the book that you wish someone had written when you were at roughly my stage of pregnancy?
4: Yes, uh, that is almost exactly right. So I, I this is a follow-up to my first book, which was about pregnancy. And there, you know, I got pregnant. I kind of looked out at the landscape of books, and there was not something that was sort of doing the, what I wanted, which was answering my questions using evidence and, and trying to help me make choices for myself rather than just sort of telling me what to do. Um, and then when I got into parenting, it was exactly the same thing. There were a ton of rules. There were a ton of uh, d- conflicting advice. Everybody gave me sort of different things that I should be doing or not doing or do more of or do less of. Um, and I, I wanted to to get some data on that. So I ended up doing you know most of the research for both books really in the service of my own pregnancy and, and parenting. Um, and then luckily some other people were interested in in reading about that also. So I got to write these books, which was really fun, has been really fun.
3: Yeah. And um, I mean, it strikes me that when it comes to parenting, everything feels so much more fraught and high stakes. And it, it becomes a kind of very personal and emotional conversation often about what are the right decisions to do as a parent. And I wonder if, you know, why you think that is in particular? And did it make Writing this book quite difficult, or have you had a kind of any tough reactions to it because people feel so passionately about these things?
4: Yeah. So I think one one big issue is that people are really want to do a good job. So this is the this is something where just it's so important to you to do it to to do the right thing to like be a good parent. Uh, And I think that what that means is when you make a choice, you really want that choice to be the right choice, Mm -hmm. and you want it to be the right choice so much that you are often drawn to thinking, well, it must be the right choice for everybody because it must be so right that everybody should do the same thing. And I think that is part of what makes some of these discussions about parenting so, um, I I don't know, almost judgmental because Mm. it feels like, okay, well, you're making a different choice than me. Well, that must mean that both your choice is wrong, but maybe you also think my choice is wrong. But I know my choice isn't wrong because I'm doing as good a job as I can here. And I think that some of the message of, of the book is when you sort of dig into the evidence, there are actually a lot of good choices. Um, mm. And that a lot of which choice you you should make is about what's going to work for your family, which is, of course, different from what works for other people's families. And I do think if we could recognize that a bit more, it might remove some of this sort of judgmental aspect. It's, we're still going to be super stressed out about doing the right thing for our family, but maybe second-guessing a little bit less. Uh, based on the fact that we 're not making the same choices as all the other people around us,
3: I really liked how honest you were in the book where you said that you know your what you'd kind of realized was that your way of optimizing happiness was to spend about eight hours at work and three hours with your kids <laughs> yes, a lot of people have have criticized
4: that um but i think I mean I think it is I'm useful definitely to with that. yeah i mean I think it is useful to to sort of acknowledge you know they're like there isn't any evidence that being home with your kids or not being home with your kids is better f- for them. And we spend so little time thinking about like what, you know, what do, do we as parents want? And I think that there's there's often sort of once you have a kid, it's all of the focus is on the kid all the time. And I think it's, in some ways that's that's good, but I'm not sure that's always as healthy for the parents. And we may be able to be better parents if we make sure that we are also, you know, taking into account some of what what we want.
1: Mm.
2: presumably part of the reason for writing the book is that you think there's a lot of uh, excuse the phrase crap out there about different aspects of uh being a parent i mean just just like wrong information sort of you know myths uh tall tales all of that
4: yeah yeah. So I think a lot of the work of the book, um, there's a sort of framing of the book is like, there's a lot of good choices. You should make the ones that are right for you. But a lot of the work of the book is saying, okay, here's what the data actually says about these things. You can't make these choices correctly if you have the wrong data. And a lot of the evidence that's out there is very poor. I mean, people are told really pretty crazy stuff about all kinds of choices in parenting about breastfeeding about circumcision about you know sleeping in the room with your baby not in the room about sleep training about like all of these things the information is very is often very poor you'll see there's like one study people will talk about that on the internet you know googling is like just the 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 death of of people um in terms of actually getting good information, and so I really wanted to like dig in and tell people, okay, this is what the evidence actually says. It may not make the the choice for you, but at least now you know what what the truth is about the literature.
1: What what was the most surprising thing that the data showed you that seemed counterintuitive?
4: So you know, there's um, there's a few things where I was I was surprised. I guess one that many people find surprising is the. Uh, is the data on breastfeeding. So, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know how, how, what this is like in the UK as much, but, you know, in the US, the, the claims that are made about the benefits of breastfeeding are very extreme. So it's, the same it's here. Yeah. you know, so it's like, some, I have these like, like sort of lists in the book. One of them is like better friendships. Is <laughs> so this, is that like, you, you, the breastfeeding is going to improve your friendships. How? Like, how would that even work? What is wrong with your friends? You know, why are they so involved in your, in your business? Um, <laughs> And so, you know, when I when I kind of dug into that, like, on the one hand, it's true that there are definitely some benefits of breastfeeding. It does seem to improve digestion in the first year, lower some risk of, of allergies in the first year. It seems to actually have some long-term benefits for the mom in terms of breast cancer reduction. But some of these other claims that people make, like, it'll make your kids smarter, it'll make them thinner, it'll reduce all these illnesses later, those just aren't supported in the best uh, data. And so I think that that's, that's surprising, partly just because of the, the extreme, the extreme rhetoric that you get. And then I think if you tell people, yeah, you know, breastfeeding's great. Like it is best in the sense that it has these, these benefits, but it's not best in the sense that if you don't do it, your kid will be like a, you know, like an overweight, like a (laughs) stupid person, you know, which is, which is really like the message that people get. And I think that's sort of, I think it's very relieving for a lot of moms actually.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think with me, you were kind of preaching to the converted, but I really like the way, you know, you've even got an aside in this book on research methods where you talk about the fact that, you know, randomised control trials are obviously superior to spurious correlations and that sort of thing. And it, it feels quite empowering, I think, to be spoken to as a, as a grown-up on this stuff. But I just wonder, I mean, you were talking about how much kind of crap data and rubbishy studies are out there. Why do you think this, this has been allowed to persist? And is it something to do with the fact that we're, women because i found particularly with pregnancy i got very irritated by how many times women were given kind of blanket prescriptions about what we should and shouldn't do based on kind of really crappy evidence and i just i just wondered like do you think there's some sort of gender issue going on there or why are we so badly served by evidence on this stuff
4: yeah, so I think there's sort of two pieces. One is that it is actually quite difficult to experiment on pregnant women um, because of ethical concerns, which is like a legitimate, um, you know, I think yeah. that's in some ways, that's a good restriction. Um, you know, on the other hand, I think that 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 is a, a, actually kind of a tricky restriction. So I've talking to some people recently who are trying to work on like the safety of medications in pregnancy. So we basically don't know about many common medications. We don't know if they're safe in pregnancy because we don't want to experiment on pregnant women. On the other hand, a lot of pregnant women are taking these medications. And so there's a question of like, is it ethical to not experiment? Because it seems like if we're not, like we're not learning about this and then people are taking them with no information. So I think there there are legitimate but complicated ethical concerns. But I think that there is also just a, a gendered piece of this that there are a lot of areas of women's health where we don't know very much Uh, And this is one of them. Uh, And I do think if men were were the ones who were pregnant, we would probably know more about some things. I mean, even some very basic stuff like, you know, there's a lot of um, some some women have reasonably significant vaginal tearing after after birth, but we actually don't really know how common that is we have a little right. bit of data but not very much and there's nothing ethical about that like that's something you could just like get if we had it on medical records yeah you but could somehow that's like not impor- like yeah. that's like oh well, we don't need to know that but like people want to know that. that that's like good yeah, information that's we should have that information yes yeah yes yeah. exactly what about
2: sleep emily because that is uh, uh you know in a way t- parents biggest nightmare when it comes to their kids you've you've got sort of thoughts don't you on uh, or evidence on, on sleep and letting babies cry, not cry, all of that. Sleep training as they say. Sleep, sleep training,
4: sleep training. You guys are not into sleep training. The UK is very negative on it.
1: <laughs> we, we did it and my wife read a book recently which made her feel terribly guilty about the fact that we'd sleep trained our son. Um, what, what does the evidence look like on sleep training?
4: So the evidence on sleep training is, is suggested as it is fine. So, I mean, I think there's sort of two pieces of the sleep training evidence are one, like sort of does it work? And are there any benefits? And then the second is, you know, does it make your does it ruin your kid's attachment to you in in the long term Um, and so on? So on the first question of does it of does it work? You know, we have actually a lot of good randomized data uh, which suggests that it does work. I mean, it doesn't work for every kid 100 percent of the time. You know, some kids have a harder time with this than than others. But on average, kids who are sleep trained will sleep better. We should
2: just say what sleep training is for those who don't who maybe haven't been through it.
4: Sleep training refers to a suite of different things where basically you let your kid sort of cry to sleep for some period. And it encompasses, like, I put them down and I let them cry until they fall asleep. I, it's some of it, Sometimes you'll go in and check on them every once in a while. Some of these things, you're in the room with them. So there's a bunch of different ways to do this, but they're all in this space of, like, kind of letting your kid fall asleep on their own. And they are usually crying some so so it does work, uh, and it, it also actually seems to have some very good impacts on parents. So this is quite good at lowering maternal depression, improving marital satisfaction. So there's all kinds of ways in which parents are not happy if they are not rested. And so when kids sleep improve and parents sleep improve, there's a sort of like family mood improvement. Um, and then on the flip side, like does this, you know, what is the evidence around damage to your kid? You know, we have randomized trial evidence. If anything, in the sort of immediate aftermath of sleep training, like right after, uh parents report that their kids are are happier, that their baby is happier. Honestly, I think that is very likely that the parent is rested. And so they are <laughs> like perceiving their baby as happier because they right. are happier. But OK, so like that, you know, but that that is what the data says. Um, and then when you look at kids at like five and six, you know, there's just no there's no evidence that these kids look at diff- any, there's any difference across, uh, across groups. So, you know, ultimately it's not going to matter either way. Probably if you do it, it's just that in the, in the beginning, your life may be much better if you, if you do this, if you want. So, you know, this is not going to be for everyone. It's actually quite hard to sleep train in the sense that it's very unpleasant. Um, so not everyone is going to, going to want to do this, but if it is something you choose to do, I think that people should be reassured that there's like kind of, there's no evidence to suggest that it would be a problem.
1: We are late on potty training. Our son is three and we really need to get on it with this. We haven't for a variety of reasons. Is there any good data on making it easy?
4: Nope. You just oh, got to no. do it. Sorry. Sorry, man. There's
1: no shortcuts.
4: There's no shortcuts. I mean, you know, you can do – there's really like two ways people potty train. There's, like, you put the potty out and kind of suggest that the kid, they might occasionally use it. Or you can just take away the the diaper and, you know – just tell them they they got deal with use, the consequences. Yeah, deal with the consequences. <laughs> and you know, these both will work. Obviously the the second one where you take that'll work faster, although there'll be pee on your floor um <laughs> some of the time. So good luck with that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what about screens? I mean my kids are slightly older, so eight and ten. So I'm uh you know, th- thankfully we are beyond the potty training stage, but we're we're definitely at the you know Arguments about screen time, stage anything, anything on that?
4: You know, so I think what's what's hard. This is a place where we kind of run, in some ways, run up against the the almost the limits of this approach. So you you know, you would like to use data, but we actually don't have much data. So we have a little bit of data on TV, um, most of which comes from a long time ago, and would kind of suggest that basically some amount of TV is fine. You know, if they're watching TV for nine hours a day, they're not doing anything else. But, you know, if your kids are watching an hour, two hours of TV a day, there isn't any evidence that that's, that that's bad for kind of test scores or long-term outcomes, um, to the extent we have evidence. But we really don't have much on, I think, the questions that parents, that certainly I am more curious about now, which is like, what about these apps? Like, is it okay for them to play apps all the time? Like, how much is too much app time? And And, you know, I think the problem is those things are so new. So if you want the answer to the question, like, what's the impact of... You know iPad screens on like high school graduation well, the kids who have iPad screens haven't gone to high school yet, and so like how how would we know the answer to that and I think think that's um that's a hard that's a hard thing for a lot of parents because it's just like the, the data is not giving you any guidance at all
2: what what's quite striking is that it seems that from for anecdotally sorry this is not evidence based that lots of the people who seem to have invented these extraordinary smartphones and so on don't let their
1: kids use them. Yeah. Which I know.
4: Make- I, I read this thing about these, like, guys in Silicon Valley who only let their kids, like, play with wooden toys and they don't yeah. yeah. No, I know. That's like...
3: <laughs> that's evidence for me. Yeah, that's a bit of evidence. <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. I don't know what we learned from yeah. that exactly. Um, Emily, I wanted to ask you, uh, I, I'm sure this is the same in the US, but in the UK, it feels like there's been a bit of a backlash against experts and expertise um, Michael Gove said in the Brexit campaign, I think everyone's sick of experts. And yet your books obviously are very much about turning to the evidence and, you know, seeking out um, expert data and then analysing it sensibly. Is it kind of a counterintuitive moment for this book to come out? Yeah, I'm not sure because I I
4: think that part of the pushback on experts is that I think that we we tend to say, oh, just, just trust me, I'm an expert, here's what you should do. Mm-hmm. And I... Like the book is explicitly like, hey, yes, I am an expert. Let me tell you why I think these things. Like, right. so in, I think I have seen part of what I what I saw in the in sort of missing in this space is there are many books, which in some sense say exactly the thing that my book says in terms of like if you looked at what are the recommendations, the recommendations would line up very well. But they oh, don't they, say
3: the workings. But they, they don't say why. why.
4: They're just yeah. like, you know, trust me, I'm an expert. Well how would you know, how would we trust you? Yeah. You're just saying that. And so I think that there's a there's a piece here which, you know, we could expand a little bit, which is to say, like, it's not it's not really fair to tell people, trust me, I'm an expert, and not give them any sense of why. It's not respectful. You know, it's mm. sort of like, Oh, you're too stupid to understand why I came up with this. So why don't you just listen to me because I'm an expert as opposed to saying, no, like actually I am using some expertise. Let me explain what that is. And let me like help you like sort of let me walk you through. Like, why is a randomized control trial better than something else? Um, Right. And you know, there are limits. I mean, the paper, the book is not like a formal meta analysis and there's work that goes into these recommendations that, or the, the, the conclusions that is sort of different um, or that's more than, than what is actually discussed in the book. But I go a long way in the book to try to explain uh, why, why I came up with these. So I don't know. We'll see.
3: Is there a bit of a danger sometimes when people do start to kind of dig into the data on their own, though, that they draw odd conclusions? I'm thinking about your chapter on vaccinations. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there was this famous study which um, turned so out to bad. be terrible in lots of ways, you know, like spurious, but also falsified. But it convinced lots of people that there was a link between the measles vaccine and and autism. Um, What do you, you know, how do you, how do you kind of cope with the fact that sometimes this data is actually just totally wrong and yet people might seize upon it?
4: Yeah, no, I mean, I think the the vaccine case is so frustrating. And I think it it, it also highlights this, yes, the sort of problem of having all this information that you know, you, there's always a study, like if people want some study to support whatever view they have, you, oh, there's always a study. Um, mm-hmm. You know, sometimes that, like in that, that is an example of a case where, yeah, there's that one study, which, as you said, was wrong and fraudulent and so on. And on the other side, there's a million other studies which show that vaccines are safe. But if you're kind of Googling around, you maybe you just find the one study or you find some people who, who've who glommed on to that. Um, and I think that that is um that is the danger, and I'm not sure exactly how we can address that. I mean, I think it is in some ways a responsibility of of kind of media reports not to to be more careful about mm. thinking about you know the limitations of these studies and how we um, and kind of how we how we report them and and how much voice we give to some. Things like the like the Wakefield um, like the Wakefield vaccine vaccine study, but I mean, I, I will say I think vaccines are are a kind of unusual um, case, like they're a very extreme example of this. And I have found uh, I I thought that I would be able to make more progress with people on the vaccines. I thought a lot about the chapter in the book where I try to explain why vaccines are safe and effective, and I have now sort of subsequently realized. Uh, that was a pipe dream. I'm not making any progress with those people at all. <laughs>
3: <laughs> so, oh, really? So have you got no. the sense that actually those people are still completely yeah. entrenched in their views? Yeah. yeah do they I don't write? Think... Ha, how do you know that? Do they write to you? Like, how yeah, get...
4: I talked to some of them, you know, and and kind of. I think that that for for whatever reason, there's a there's a push in, in there's a a sort of a level of skepticism in this space that I had not anticipated. You know, people who say. Well, it, you know, yes, I read that study where they have every person in Denmark and they show that there's no relationship between autism and vaccines. But, you know, in Denmark, they give the first sets of vaccines at at three months and here we give them at two months. And so obviously that data is not at all applicable. And so I, like, yeah. I, you know, I mean, it, like there's, there's like sort of nothing that I can, there's no response to that. I mean, that doesn't That isn't a logical conclusion, but also I'm not sure how to kind of come back to it. How to respond
3: to it. Yeah. Yeah. Your book is mostly about the kind of individual choices that parents um, might think about making. There isn't so much on public policy and what choices uh, politicians can make. But I mean, you, you touched briefly on, for example, paid parental leave, where it seems as if there's very strong evidence that having a decent amount of paid parental leave has really good outcomes, both for parents and for children, can we talk a bit more about about that? About the sort of what what policy implications might there be for some of your research?
4: Yeah, so I, I mean, I think that there's there's many places where, as you said, that there's sort of not an obvious policy link. It's sort of a book like it's more like a how-to book. Um, mm. But I think that we do yes around the area of parental leave, it's sort of the the policy is very clear. Um, and you know, the US has obviously very very poor. Um, that is none uh paid <laughs> paid parental leave um i still find that
3: astounding
4: it's, it's amazing astounding. i mean it's it is a pretty amazing uh yeah it's pretty amazing um i think you know the evidence is most is sort of most strongly in support of the idea that um that, like, having, say, four months of paid parental leave is really good for, uh, for kids. I think it's, the evidence is more mixed on sort of like, like, do we need to go beyond that? You know, like, is it important to have 15 months of paid leave or a year of paid leave? And I think that's, um, you know, that's, that evidence is, is just, it's not, it's not as compelling. Um, but the, the evidence on the early leave is really, is really clear.
2: So the sort of Scando style leave, well, it, you think, it I mean, it, you know, it has intuitive attractions, you know, yeah. you know, some places have, you know, three months for fathers use it or lose it. You're saying the evidence on longer than four months is is less clear.
4: It's less clear. I mean, which doesn't mean that it suggests it's bad. Obviously, yeah. that, I think that that's, sure. that's great. And a lot of, and we're not measuring things like how happy are the parents about this and sure. so on. But if you're sort of looking at like, kind of the most basic outcomes for kids like right, hospitalizations right. or mortality like those are things where we actually see right. like infant mortality effects from right. early leave we don't see this kind of effects from later from later leave so
3: so there are there are infant mortality um consequences for not having paid yeah, parental leave that's right and yet the u.s government still hasn't that's done right it. yep that's correct yeah totally 100 <laughs> percent.
4: that's right
2: is yeah. there research actually on on paternity leave? In other words, you know, the, as I say, the, the, uh, the Scandinavian countries uh, have three months, use it or lose it for the father. I think Iceland is just moving to five months. Um, is there any evidence on that?
4: Yeah, there is a bit. So I think what's tricky about this is in a lot of these cases, when you change the, the paternal leave policy, it's at the expense of maternal leave. And so it's a little bit hard to say like what happens when you extend paternal leave holding constant maternal, maternal leave. Um So I think that's been, but actually there's a, there's a paper that just came out, which is about a very specific aspect of paternal leave, which is, um, I think that this isn't, I think it's in Sweden. They, they like did some, there's some extension of the number of days that um, the number of, of days that the, the dad could take um, that would overlap with the mom. Um, and they actually find, even though, the the dad is not taking many additional days. They're actually quite good effects on maternal mental health. So it looks like there are sort of times when kind of having two parents at home would be really valuable and giving fathers some more leave means that they are able to take some days on the days when like you just kind of need a second person. Um and so I think that's that's some sort of new evidence that suggests that paternal leave is important.
3: You towards the end of your book you mentioned the best piece of parenting advice that you were ever given. Do you want to just um share that with us?
4: Yeah. So, um, so this was, uh, we had a really great pediatrician with my, with my daughter. And so when we would go in to see her, I would have these like long lists of, you know, crazy concerns that I wanted to discuss. So one, one time my daughter's almost two, we were headed on this vacation to, we're going to France. We had been to this location before, and it it is a place where there are some bees and she had never been stung by a bee. And so I had like gotten this sort of one of these things that you have as a parent, we're just like obsessed with some, some concern. So my concern was she would be stung by a bee, and she would turn out to be allergic and we would like not be able to get to some hospital. So I was like explaining like, okay, here's what I'm concerned about. Like she could get stung. It's really isolated. Like where should we go? So on. And, you know, should I get an EpiPen? Like, you know, should we <laughs> test her for these? I had like this whole set of like possible solutions that we could have to this important problem. And our doctor sort of like, she like, let me finish. And then she sort of paused and she was like, yeah, I would just try not to think about that. And I was like, okay. And you know, it was sort of one of those moments where you like step back and you're like, you're right. Obviously, this is insane. And, and you know, it was, it was good because of course, there actually is an evidence based answer there, which is to say, actually, the first time, even if you're allergic, the first time you get stung, it typically wouldn't be very bad. Like, this isn't really, this isn't really something that you should be worried about. But I think she was, she was sort of very accurately picking up on like, you know what, just like, don't think about that because you can't, control everything and this isn't something you should be focused on right now <laughs> so she was great she was a very she was a very well-suited doctor for me
3: can you give us something to be cheerful about at the moment
4: uh
2: what's the most cheerful thing in terms of having written this book do you think what, what what's the sort of I, I not necessarily about a piece of data but what what did it sort of what what's the kind of most optimistic thing that you felt having written it
4: so I think the most optimistic thing is that we're all like doing a good job. Um, and I, I think that every like there are so many like good ways to parent and that it 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 is not there is not just one path. And I think that's that is like optimistic and, and cheerful. It and should make
3: people happy. You're probably doing it fine. <laughs> Great. Let's cheer to something no end.
2: Emily Oster, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Cheerful Book Club is produced by Emma Corsham and Joel Pierce for Cheerful Productions in association with Goldfish London. Support for Cheerful Book Club comes from Vintage. Read boldly, think differently. Follow at Vintage Books for more.